News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. If you have ever filed a Freedom of Information request, be it provincially or federally, you know it can be very difficult to get that information, and it has become more and more difficult recently. That is the subject of a House of Commons committee studying the issue. And joining us to talk more about what the issues are is Matthew Green. Matthew Green is a federal New Democrat MP. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. morning. A lot of concerns have been raised about not only the law itself, but how different government agencies respond to these requests. Can you go through some of the concerns that have been brought forward to this committee? Well, you know, access to information is a fundamental part of a Western democracy. And there's a saying that access denied is access, access delayed is access denied. And we have a situation with this federal government that campaigned in 2015 of being, you know, a transparent government. They, they stated that sunshine was the best antiseptic, and yet their record proves otherwise. You have a government that um, not only across the board delays access to information, but they're also, you know, you have a prime minister's office who uses um, cabinet confidence. They use secret orders in council, unlike any government before them. So for the public to be able to access just basic information that should be released within a month, it's taking sometimes up to years just to get access to basic information. Uh, I know uh, David Aiken, who uh, is a Global News reporter, he showed uh, a, a request that was made to various government agencies and the response times, much like you said, in, in one case. Well, in some cases, there still has been no response. Uh, in another case, uh, the RCMP, it took more than 750 days. In another case, it took almost 450 days. And like you said, there these requests are supposed to be responded to within 30, or within 30 days. So did you get any sense or any answers as to why? that's not happening well you know within our early studies there have been critics who have said that this is administrative sabotage that there is a culture of fear within the government to provide citizens and the media access to sometimes some of the most basic information and what we're seeing is just unnecessary levels of bureaucracy that have to sign on on sometimes you know what appears to be even the most basic correspondence it is inexcusable and incomprehensible that it would take years to receive requests for some of the most basic pieces of, of information that should be made readily available. And I should also note that this is a, you know, a liberal government that in 2015 implemented a minister for digital government. They had committed to providing systems and principles across the board with their ministries that would streamline this stuff. And yet, unceremoniously, the ministry was dropped in 2019, which to me, I think, is both an indication of the failure of the government to um, successfully implement its mandate, as well as it just not being a priority for this Trudeau government. And when we talk about the freedom of information requests as well, we're not only talking about journalists and news organizations that are trying to get information. We're also talking about citizens and a big percentage of those requests comes from Canadians. And should they not have access to information that really is theirs? Well, I'll state it unequivocally. It's their information. It's information they paid for. Um, this, this level of secrecy is unnecessary. And You know, in a time when there is growing cynicism in government, lack of trust in our basic democratic institutions, we have a duty and responsibility as parliamentarians to provide them with the information. And I'm, you know, I think what's worse, (laughs) what makes this situation worse is that in most cases, I believe that if the information had just been released in a timely way, it would help dispel some of the conspiracy theories that are out there And, you know, with a vacuum of information, it allows people to fill the void with misinformation and disinformation. And so I think the government is really lacking on a a key opportunity to dispel some of that stuff and help restore the faith in our democracy.
Did you get any sense that the government is also perhaps hiding behind the issue of when the pandemic hit? We know that government workers, many of them, uh, except for those deemed essential, were sent home to work and perhaps couldn't uh, put together freedom of information requests or couldn't do it from home. And that kind of created a stall. But uh, I mean, that time is over. But is did you get the sense that there is still a kind of hiding behind the, the pandemic, making it more difficult? Well, I think that's the default answer for the government, but it's not one that I'm willing to accept. If the information is current, then it ought to be digital. If it's digital, then it's transferable via computer to, you know, to anywhere someone is working from and from anywhere someone is working from. So I'm unwilling to accept that. If it's historic information, if it's requests that were, um, you know, paper only in document, then maybe, but that is that is not the bulk of these requests. The bulk of these requests from citizens, in my early understanding of the study, is coming due to ministerial inadequacy, to failures of the government to provide timely answers on files like immigration, for instance, which has some of the highest um, access to information request frequencies, right? This is a symptom of a greater failure within ministries to be able to implement their basic services and programs. And we see it on a provincial level as well. And there is information that should be released that people, anybody, shouldn't have to go through a freedom of information request because, like you said, this is our information. Uh, People do, and they hope to get it, but it's, again, another level of bureaucracy. Uh, So what do you think will happen now? I know the the ethics, uh, the um, commissioner has put forward 18 recommendations and and put that to the committee. Do you have any confidence that this will change? Uh, you know what? Not with this federal government. I think it's our job as opposition to put pressure on them to have outcomes that are, that are you know, um, in keeping with the spirit of an open and transparent government. I think, unfortunately, we have a government who says one thing and does the other. They're very good at the rhetoric. You know, they make promises to Canadians about being an open and transparent government, about sunshine being the best antiseptic. And yet, they're, I think, in my opinion, they're one of the most secretive closed-off governments to date. And uh, this should be a nonpartisan issue. I want to be clear about that. That all parliamentarians, regardless of their party affiliation, regardless of the level of government, we should all have a, com- a commitment to good governance. And openness and transparency in a Western democracy is a foundational element of that and one we should all be committed to. Matthew Green, thank you so much for your time this morning and for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. That was Matthew Green. He is a federal New Democrat MP, also on that House of Commons committee, which is studying the issue of freedom of information and how that system is working in Canada. It is one of those rare occasions where the MPs on the conservative side and the New Democrats are in agreement when it comes to the broken system and wanting that system fixed, at least streamlined, so people can get that information. This is Mornings with Simi. Question of the day has to do with that story out of merit. Uh, Mom ran into the school to drop something off, left the two kids in the car, then saw that car pulling out of the parking lot. Police were called. They got the driver, arrested that driver a short distance away. Our question is, is it ever okay to leave your kids in the car if you're just running in somewhere doing a quick errand and I got this email from a listener saying as a kid I waited in the car on a regular basis from a few minutes to more than 45 minutes under most circumstances it should not be a problem but then I also walked to school and climbed trees without the aid of bubble wrap thank you for that email let's check in now with mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal good morning to you Good morning, Jill. So first of all, I I would not leave my kids in a vehicle, not in my driveway, not at a mall, not at a park, not at their beloved Naniji's house, just never. But I do not judge this mother's decision that led to this, I mean, shocking incident, right? And when people hear of a mistake or a judgment call that went wayward for a mom, I feel like they're very quick to shame um, but in this case, like this news story is actually easy to picture. The the woman lives in Merritt, a small town. She knows her community. She probably knows that exact 
parking spot. She's probably familiar with every face around there. And presumably it's her own child's school. So she ran in somewhere to the school where she thought she just was going to do something really quickly. I just, the whole thing I find is really shocking. I totally sympathize. And, uh, you know, you just don't think that something like that is going to happen. It just seems like it's completely out of left field. It does. It does. And and the fact that, and that's even why she said she was sharing this story, because even though I'm sure she knew that uh, there would be people that would be not so nice uh, as people are, a, a good cautionary tale for others. Yeah, a good cautionary tale for others. And it's those tales that uh, lead my behavior with leaving kids in the car. I just don't do it because I hear of these stories. And even if we don't hear of them frequently, um, you know, you accidentally, for example, someone loses their keys on a hot day. They've put their they've had their kid in the car just for a minute, wanted to get something from the trunk. And then already, you know, there's things can go wayward really quickly. So yeah, I, th- I think, um, in fact, I think it's good that she shared this tale so that people can learn from it. Well, we are asking people that. That is our question to, for people to share their experiences, their thoughts on that. So we'll get some of those more uh, throughout the show today. What else are we talking about this morning? Okay, well, first of all, I, this story out of New Zealand, I really sympathize with Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister there, who was caught on hot mic calling a minor opposition party leader and a not nice name, I'll say. So in some countries, it's considered a swear word, uh, but she called him an arrogant blank. Um, people can look it up. And she personally apologized to the politician. She texted him a sorry, but she's still facing so much criticism uh, from the public for the name calling, even though it was under, you know, under her breath. And she did not say it out loud, very loudly. On the one hand, Jill, I get it. Politicians should never even have that kind of language knocking around in their head. They should never, you know, even privately use name calling because it could accidentally come out in a case like this. I think you basically, if you're a politician, you got to behave like anything that you utter in public could potentially be caught on mic, right? But Mm -hmm. the comment was made live on parliament television during question time. So after ending her reply to a politician, she sat down and she said this kind of thing to herself and to next to her deputy quietly made this comment. And should she have known better? Okay, absolutely. hundred percent. In fact, she does know better, right? But my question is, can a politician ever have an honest-to-goodness human moment? And the answer, I think, is no. (laughs) Maybe not when you're still talking into a microphone. I'm sure people will be commenting on that one as well. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. We have been talking a lot about policing in Surrey and the future of policing. We are probably the only major Canadian city that has no problem recruiting. We have over a thousand applicants for experienced officers and we have over a thousand for brand new recruits. And that's unheard of in Canadian policing. That was Norm Lipinski, the chief of the Surrey Police Service, speaking yesterday. As we know, Surrey City Council voted last night to send a plan to reverse the city's police transition to the province's Minister of Public Safety. That plan based in part on that municipal report that was released last week that takes a look at some of the costs associated with the future of policing. Well, joining us now is Wally Opal, who was the chair of the Surrey Police Transition Task Force. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. It's always good to be with you, Jill. What are your thoughts on this, and specifically the focus on the costs? When we we see this report, concerns have been raised about the difference in the numbers, whether it's transitioning away from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Service or keeping the RCMP. Well, I think there are two different um, things that we need to discuss about costs. Uh, There are three different sources now of costs that City Council from Surrey, the Surrey Police uh, Service, and the RCMP will submit be submitting something about costs. But there are two things I want to talk about costs. First, City Council voted unanimously in 2018 to establish its own police force. Why didn't anybody at that time on that City Council talk about costs? Why didn't they cost out the project before they went into it? The other thing I want to talk about costs is I suspect that within five to ten years, there'll be very little difference in costs between the RCMP and the Surrey Police Service. The reason I say that is 
At one time, it was an advantage to have the RCMP because they were not unionized, but they are now. The largest component in policing budgets are labor costs, the costs of hiring officers. And those costs will be somewhat similar whether you get the RCMP or the local police force. And that's important to know because both forces are now unionized. And I suspect in five to 10 years, there'll be little or no difference. There's one other factor that really needs to be considered, and no one much talks about it, least of all city council. The reason they, they made the move in 2018 is Surrey was the largest city in Canada without its own police force. So that meant that all decisions of having a federal police force governed from Ottawa were made in Ottawa. So the thinking at the time, 2018, is we need to govern our own police force. We need to select our own police chief. We need to have a police board, police committees that are, that are cognizant and aware of local conditions. Those are the big factors that were, were the impetus behind uh, establishing a Surrey police force. And I don't hear anybody from this city council talking about that issue. Uh, city council has to ask themselves, are you comfortable with having your local police force governed from Ottawa? Are you comfortable with entering into a contract with the federal government, contract policing, which means that you enter into contract with the federal government and they give you a police force. Now, that's contrary to community-based policing. Uh, so those are factors that city council has to think, think about. The other thing is, there's no doubt that the RCMP have done an excellent job in policing in the last 70 years in, in Surrey and in this province. But it really comes down to where do you want your decisions made, here or in Ottawa? And I suspect the reason Surrey is the last city in Canada, major city in Canada, without its own police forces, everybody else decided they wanted to do governance on a local level. So do you think there has been too much attention then spent on uh, this is going to be $235 million over yeah. five years? This is no, it's going to be 99. Is there too much be- attention being spent yeah. on those numbers? Well, I, I'm not minimizing the concept of costs. It's important. But having said that, as I said, that it'll average itself out over five to 10 years. And I think uh, right now, classic example of too much emphasis being placed is that you're going to get three sets of figures. The ones that city council produced last night, the ones that the city police force will, will uh, come up with, and the RCMP will come up with their figures. So as I said at the moment, my guess is that at the end of the day, in five to 10 years, there'll be very little difference in the policing costs between the RCMP and a local police force. The real issue here is governance and local authority and local decision-making. So when this report then, or this vote then, now goes to the public safety minister, who ultimately gets the final say in this and makes that decision, how much of a factor do you think is that going to be? I think that'll be a big factor. I don't know what he's going to decide. But the other thing that, that no one's really talking about, and that is that the, the province has an overall policing strategy. They're going to go into regional policing. So the province is going to be divided into three regions, the interior, the lower mainland, and Vancouver Island. So how does, a new, how does going back to the RCMP fit into that major strategy and the major, major move towards that type of policing? And that's something that Mike Farnworth is going to have to think about. The other thing is that... Uh, I have no doubt that he'll think about all the families and all the officers who have come here at the invitation of Surrey, moved from other parts of Canada, moved from other police forces, and established themselves as a local police force. You can't ignore their, their, uh, their plight and their personal circumstances. But if the decision has already been made that this province is moving to regional policing, then doesn't that kind of give you a clear picture or clear direction on where the decision from the public safety minister is going? Well, I would think so. I would think that uh, that Mike Farnworth will say, okay, does an RCMP detachment run from Ottawa 
fit in with our local police strategy. You, you might want to look at Alberta. Alberta has decided that they do not want the RCMP as its provincial police force. They've decided that. And uh, so they're going to move towards an Alberta-based police force that will police the whole of the province. So there is a movement away from centralized contract policing. That's taking place across Canada. So I suspect that Mike Farnworth will have to think about that when he makes the decision. All right, and we're expecting that decision early in the new year. Wally Opal, always so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, yesterday, thanks to CKNW reporter Janet Brown, we were able to bring you the news that the Surrey Christmas Bureau is still in need of a lot of donations and really seeing a lack of donations, probably in part due to the inflation that we're seeing and the cost of living. It's not just the Surrey Christmas Bureau. Donations to several Vancouver charities have been impacted by this. So joining us now is Nicole Denezi, Manager of Donor Marketing and Special Projects at Canada Helps. Nicole, thank you you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What are we seeing as far as people with do- making donations and charities getting those much needed donations at this time of year? Right. As you said, it's really sort of two sides of the story. On the one hand, many charities are experiencing a fairly significant demand. Most recently, we conducted an Ipsos poll just a couple of weeks ago asking Canadians how many individuals would be turning to charities uh, for essential services like food and shelter, for example. And that turned out to be two in 10 Canadians expecting to turn to those charitable essential services in the next six months. So many organizations are facing this rising demand. But at the same time, as you mentioned, in terms of the, the Surrey Christmas Bureau, You know, many organizations are also facing either softening or declining um, revenues that, um, you know, makes it quite challenging. As part of our Ipsos poll, we also asked Canadians in terms of, you know, how much they're planning to donate this year versus last year. And 20 percent of Canadians were actually anticipating to reduce their giving this year. Hmm. And have we seen declines or have you done polling like this in the past? In terms of um, polling, we we also included this um, as part of um, our results from earlier this year, but it really speaks to, an, a, I'd say, a overall trend in terms of the sector. Um, we release a giving report every year, and as part of that report, um, we, we have reported on the fact that the number of Canadians engaging in charitable giving has actually been on the decline. Um, so in 2006, 25% of Canadians um, claimed charitable tax donations on their taxes. And by 2019, that number dropped to 19%. So, you know, there's been sort of a decline um, over the years, even before the pandemic. And not a huge surprise, I would think, again, when we talk about inflation, cost of living, so many things costing more. Uh, Did you poll or look at as well, is there a a correlation between household income or are there any other factors that seem to come into play when it comes to charitable giving? Mm-hmm. So as part of that Ipsos poll that I mentioned to you that we conducted last or back in uh, end of October, um, we asked um, individuals, of course, you know, what they're planning to donate this year. And even among households with an income of $100,000 or more, um, those households, 18% um, were planning to give less this year versus last year. Um, 13% of households of $100,000 or more um, were planning to give um, more to charities. Um, so, it, it, you know, it sort of suggests that even Canadians perhaps with greater income are being a little bit more cautious given, to the, given the economy. But we are still hoping that, especially, you know, as we're talking about this today, Canadians will hear that message loud and clear and give what they can uh, for the remainder of the holiday season. Do you find, too, are people more likely to give when they see things happening, such as the ongoing war in Ukraine, or if we see natural disasters, does that kind of prompt people to give more? Right. It's a great question. And, you know, at Canada Helps, we often activate in terms of, um, you know, responding to those crises, whether it's Ukraine or, uh, you know, 
different floods or earthquakes. And we'd certainly see a spike right after those events take place. But then, of course, with any sort of news event, as the, the news coverage sort of carries over and, and you know, it, it no longer becomes front page headlines, um, you know, we see those d- donations decline typically. And uh, and I guess looking at these numbers as well this year, what we're seeing different, not only are we seeing that decline of people, with people giving for those various reasons, but like you mentioned, an increase in people who are actually going to be going and asking for help. Right. It's sort of a, a double whammy in that sense. So, um, you know, charities, it really depends on the charity as well. Some organizations may not actually be seeing a demand. For example, perhaps arts and cultures charities, um, and I'm speaking very generically, like it, it really depends on a case-by-case basis. But overall, when we are talking to charities and we are talking to them about their demands, um, it's really clear that it's been quite a struggle. Um, we even recently did a poll with um, among smaller organizations back in the summer, and these are these are small charities that make about five hundred thousand dollars or less in annual fundraising dollars in revenue, um, and forty one percent of those charities have seen an increase in demand at the start of the pandemic. But demand has actually only returned to pre-pandemic levels for about 5% of those charities. So overall, um, you know, it, it's been quite a challenge for the sector. All right, Nicole, we'll leave it there for this morning. Thank you so much, though, for bringing us uh, this update. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we have been talking a lot about internationally trained doctors and cutting some of the red tape when it comes to doctors being able to work in the Canadian healthcare system and making sure we speed up that process. Well, what about Canadian doctors who train at international medical schools and then want to come back and work in Canada? Why are there so many roadblocks there? Well, Greg Mercer is joining us now, and Greg is an investigative reporter with The Globe and Mail and has recently written about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Okay, thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, it's such an interesting piece because I think we often don't think about some of those hurdles when Canadian doctors train elsewhere. What did you find out, though, about the numbers and what's happening with that? I guess I was surprised at how many Canadians are, as we speak, you know, getting medical degrees abroad in other countries, particularly places like Ireland, you know, in the UK, the US, um, you know, Australia and how difficult we make it as a country for them to return here and to become physicians. There's a lot of roadblocks and a lot of choke points in their way that, that ultimately cause them to go elsewhere. And that's, that's a major problem for our country right now. I found one of the numbers, well, some of the numbers in your piece as well, looking at the reasons why Canadians would leave to go and study abroad. And it's much more than, say, just wanting to get a degree in a different country. The number of applicants that are rejected and just how difficult it is to actually get a spot in a Canadian medical school. This is it. There's only about 2,800 medical school seats in Canada, right? And so, so more than nine out of 10 people who apply to medical school in this country, most of those people have excellent grades, would make excellent doctors. They simply can't get in because there's not enough space. There's not enough capacity in the system. So a lot of them choose to go elsewhere. They, they go to places like Ireland, like we, we wrote about in this story, because those universities um, want them. These folks are seen as the cream of the crop. Um, and, and then, it, but we make it really hard for them to return home. And so what is it then? So using that as an example, so somebody from Vancouver goes to Ireland, they get a medical degree, maybe they've gone for that exact reason, even with great grades, they weren't able to get a spot at a Canadian school. They want to come back and work in Canada. What roadblocks are in place? So the problem for for people coming from a medical school overseas is that they need to do a Canadian residency. That's that's the two-year um, supervised work period that you get after you get your medical degree, that's mandatory. For, so for most doctors, that is the typical route to follow to become a licensed physician. The problem is, if you're coming from an international university, the, the stream that you compete for is much smaller than the stream of residencies for people from Canadian universities. So even if you're from Vancouver and you're Canadian, the system sees you as a foreign applicant. And so you, there's a much smaller pool of openings available to you. 
So not only are you kind of squeezed out in getting that spot at a Canadian school, you're then squeezed out if you do want to try and come back and get one of those residency spots. Absolutely. And, and what's frustrating for a lot of these people is that, I mean, they, they have, they've paid for their own education. They are not subsidized by Canadian taxpayers. They pay significantly more than, than a domestic medical student. They want to come back and be part of the solution to Canada's doctor shortage. The chances of them having success here are very high. You know, they're from the communities that they want to work in. But uh, we, we have, the, way, the way we've designed the system is to limit the supply of, of, of international medical graduates. And those Canadians are caught up in that. And what is it like then in other countries if somebody then, and I'll use that scenario again, a Vancouver resident goes, trains in Ireland, looks for a residency, there are these barriers to come back to Canada and do it. Are they able to go and is it easier then to go to other countries? Definitely. I mean, the U.S., for example, is where many of them end up. Something like 60% of all international uh, medical school applicants get accepted into a residency in the U.S. In Canada, it's less than 25. So people know that. They know the odds. And they're saying, the math is not in my favor to get a residency in Canada. I'm going to go to the U.S. uh, where I have a better chance of of getting a job. Uh, The U.S. has also done something in recent years where they offer residencies sooner than we do as a country. And once you get that residency offer, if you're a medical student, you want to take it. It's not in your interest to turn it down. One, because it's a binding contract, but two, you could be turning down your only residency that you can get. So the U.S., frankly, is stealing away from Canada some of, some of our best and brightest people who would like to be working here, but, but they simply are beating us to the punch. And which I think when you when you listen to it, it just seems so counterintuitive because we know as well there are shortages of medical staff and we've been hearing from governments saying they want to streamline this and make it easier so we do have more doctors and we have more staff. With, with the residency programs, is it a lack of capacity? There just simply aren't the positions or the, or they're just being filled by other people? It's, it's, a, it's a lack of capacity. The, the argument is that we need to really open up the number of spots for international applicants. And provinces, you know, in the 90s, deliberately cut back those positions for international um, medical graduates on purpose to limit the supply of doctors. We're dealing with the fallout from that all of these decades later. And the system uh, is, is very slow to, to respond it's, it's not been able to, because it's so bureaucratic, um, to, to, to quickly switch it to increase the supply of physicians. And like you mentioned as well, for anybody uh, to be considered an international medical graduate, and I get that, even if you're, if you're a Canadian, again, who's gone abroad, but if the checks are there or the, 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 the system is there to make sure that the training that you received, wherever it was that you took the training, has you uh, meeting all of the requirements to become a resident, you would think it would be easy enough to streamline that. You would think. It takes political will, and we are seeing some provinces begin to address this. B.C. in particular has added a number of residencies specifically for international grads in the last 20 years. They went from about 8 to 58 in, you know, in the last 20 years, so that's progress. It's still not enough. Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and Labrador are also doing the same. They're adding more uh, residency positions specifically for Canadians who are studying abroad. So there's a recognition among some provinces Um but other provinces are, are, are behind the eight ball and they are they have slow to respond to this. And, and so I think we're starting to see an awakening within the medical system in Canada that, that provinces need to adjust their policies um, because we are losing these physicians um, increasingly each year. And like you said, too, we're talking about people who are going abroad, who are paying for their education and for, uh, through whatever means, whether they have uh, the, the means at their disposal or they're taking out loans. But either way, they're paying for their education and then wanting to come back and work in Canada. You would think governments would look at that and think of it as, as a potential, a very big win. Absolutely. I mean, the people who give advice to provincial governments are saying, here is one very simple solution that we ought to be targeting right now. And it's much cheaper to, to, to increase doctors this way than by adding medical seats to Canadian medical schools. And faster, we should add, right? These people are, are ready to come here and begin doing residencies. We let other countries educate them and take on that bill. They're paying for this out of pocket, and it saves Canadian taxpayers. A lot of people are saying this makes perfect sense, and we ought to be taking this more seriously.
And from reading your piece as well, it seems like, like you said, it takes the political will, but it also seems like this would be a faster solution or at least a more streamlined way of looking at this rather than there was just a re-announcement in BC about a new medical school, but it's still years away and it's going to be eight to 10 years before that school, if it stays on track, before it even starts graduating doctors. This seems like a much easier way to at least address part of the problem. Most definitely. Yeah, I think that there's no question that expanding capacity at medical schools is part of the solution. But as to your point, that's going to take years. Here is a solution we could do starting immediately that within a year or two could begin producing more physicians. Um, And it only makes sense for provinces to begin doing this. All right. Uh, Greg Mercer, it's such an interesting article. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about it today. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've likely heard, yesterday, Premier David Eby announced there will be an ICBC rate freeze for two years. We all know the high cost of living is getting to a lot of people, so the announcement might be a relief for some ICBC customers. But the news also has some critics. For more, we are joined once again by contributor Raji Sohal. Good morning again. Hi, Jill. Yeah, we're hearing a lot about whether ICBC can afford that rate freeze, given its financial statements. Of course, Vaughn Palmer was on with you this morning talking about how ICBC is losing money and a freeze might not be affordable. But yesterday, I was listening to the Mike Smith show and he had Aaron Sutherland on from the Insurance Bureau of Canada. He said ICBC so mismanaged that they spent more on operating costs than towards those injury claims. Now, you can expect, I think, that a big bureaucracy on monopoly corporations, but people in B.C. hand over so much of their hard-earned cash to ICBC, and then given their no-fault policy, uh, their claims don't even take care of them in many cases. So what are we paying for with ICBC? I talked to Seth Wielden. He's an injury lawyer with Presler Law, and a lot of his clients have to go through ICBC's claims process. He is frustrated by the messaging of yesterday's rate freeze because he says that the government's trying to make the rate freeze seem like it's pro-consumer when he says ICBC's no-fault policy is actually anything but. I think it's misleading. ICBC made $1.5 billion in 2020. Now their fiscal year ends on March 31st, uh, but then for the fiscal year of 2021, they made $2.2 billion. So normally when a government saves a bunch of money, they want to release that to the media. ICBC and the province have failed to acknowledge that. What instead they did was they said that they thought they might lose $300 million next year. I don't know where they got those numbers, but it's hard for me to understand that. And uh, based on their track record, I, I, I just, I can't wrap my head around it. So I'm, I'm hoping they can clarify the numbers, but their press release says they're going to lose money, but they're still holding their money, that, uh, our rates the same. From my perspective, if I made nearly $2 billion a year and I held everything exactly the same, that would be in their benefit, not the rate payers. Well, it's like every couple of weeks, there's a story of someone else who's going through an awful, awful time when they're at their most vulnerable. So from my perspective, those stories shouldn't happen when we have a monopoly. If, if people are having a tough time, they should have alternatives. They should have choices. And it's frustrating that there's a monopoly and yet people don't have access to the health care that they need. And ICBC is non-responsive to people when they need their help. So I, I feel like if, if they were doing a, an excellent, amazing job, a monopoly might not be the worst thing. But at this point, they took away people's rights to consult lawyers and they gave them no alternative except for ICBC. So I I feel like it's a bad thing and they're not taking care of vulnerable people. Do you think we need to change that system? Absolutely. Um, The number I quoted, the 1.5 billion, that was profit while there was a tort system. So ICBC can be profitable and have a tort system. 
There's no reason they can't. The problem with the money was ICBC's management. And once ICBC managed this, this monopoly effectively, they made money. So there's no reason that the two can't live in tandem where people have rights and ICBC makes money. So what needs to happen going forward, do you think? Well, there's a constitutional challenge to the no-fault regime. And um, I think it, it, it's not an easy lawsuit, but um, there's an opportunity for the courts to overturn it. Besides that, uh, it seems very clear that the NDP have no intention of changing what's going on. And so it would take a new government to, to change the laws. I just find it very frustrating uh, that the government has a monopoly and then they're not being clear with the people. It's not a good deal that we have. You know, they're, they're saying that, oh, we're freezing rates. Well, if they also disclose that they're making billions of dollars, that doesn't seem like a good deal. But then you talk about, oh, people saved 20% since this regime came in. Well, how would you feel if you're a quadriplegic, can't work again, and you can't access, you can't access care that you need? Would that feel like a good deal to you? Hmm, interesting comments, Amranjis. We certainly have seen a couple of cases. I'm thinking of the cyclist who was hit oh, yeah. and a couple of cases where people have said, yeah, it's great if your insurance costs less as long as you don't have to use it to, or don't have to make a claim. It's all about that. In fact, yeah, uh, Premier David Eby said yesterday that this uh, rate, free was, rate freeze was going to help keep insurance affordable for British Columbians at a time when we're all feeling that pinch. We're all facing significant cost pressures. But like you say, well, what if you get in a crash and you need that uh, you, the no fault policy doesn't benefit you? I've interviewed individuals and families who have not benefited from the no-fault regime. They're people who got severely injured. Their lives were changed um, when a vehicle ended up hitting them. And then they have to finance that costly recuperation process themselves afterwards. And just this summer, I interviewed a family of a a five-year-old girl who's crossing the street in Kitsilano after just playing tennis with her family. She was struck by a car. Her life was changed. Her family's life was changed. They couldn't sue. And then I think the cyclist that you're talking about, um, uh, he became an advocate for others afterwards because after his crash, he wasn't allowed to sue the driver of a car that ran a red light that hit him. And he ended up with living with dozens of pins all over his body for many, many months. So, you know, was the rate freeze announcement political to some extent? Was it really done to protect BC residents' pockets during inflation? I don't know. And I think if ICBC cares about customers, if that's what this is about, they care about the consumer, then why doesn't it review the no-fault policy rather than look to, to rate freezes? Yeah, and in that case of the cyclist, I'm going off memory, but he was he fought it because he was actually found to be partly liable or he had to pay some of the costs, to which his response was, well, hold on a second, I didn't do anything wrong. I was on my bike and I got hit by a car. Now you're telling me I have to pay? And he was, thankfully he did that because he did end up getting that, that case reversed. And like you said, becoming an advocate for others saying this is not how it's supposed to work. Yeah, and if if uh, that guy Ben Bollinger, if he had not uh, been so vocal, if he hadn't advocated so hard, um, then who knows if it would have been reversed. But a lot of people have looked to his case since to see what they should do with their own. But from what I understand, uh, you can sue in some cases, but it is extremely rare. That's what I've been told from from lawyers, and that just doesn't seem fair to a lot of the victims. No, not not at all. And again, people might be enjoying the fees that are less, the policies that aren't costing as much, but I do think it's a totally different story if you do find yourself in the system as one of the people who, like you say, has been hurt, has been injured, whether you're a pedestrian, whether you're a driver, and then you have to navigate that system and try and get compensation. Yeah, and also when you look at the financial record, I think of ICBC, there is more that could be said for transparency there, like the financial statements, how they're presented. Uh, we should know as consumers, we should know how much overall ICBC is making every year very clearly, whereas instead it just seems so, so muddy in terms of what they're making, what's the profit and, and all of that. 
another uh, conversation about uh, opening it up. I know many people, I put myself in this group, would love to see it opened up to private insurance, but I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon. Raji, thank you so much for this. Thank you, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as we know, many people started working from home during the pandemic and many people have stayed at home, whether it's full time or maybe some kind of hybrid situation. This option has become largely popular due to the ease, the efficiency of working out of your own space, maybe in comfortable clothing. You don't have to commute. But some people are finding their home insurance doesn't actually cover them if they are going that route. So joining us to talk more about this is Rob DePruis, National Director of Consumer and Industry Relations at the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Rob, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What do people need to know then as far as if you are working from home, you've got your home insurance policy that you had probably in place before the pandemic. What changes if you start working from home? Well, your home insurance is designed to cover your home itself and your personal contents. So anything that is dealing with your business, so business equipment or personal and confidential business files, you would need to make sure that you have a separate business endorsement or an add-on to your home policy or even a separate business insurance policy to make sure that you have proper coverage. And is that something that's generally more expensive? Generally speaking, yes. The risk is different. We have to remember that everybody working from home, their situation is going to be different. Some people may have only a laptop and a cell phone. Other people may have specialty equipment and client files, and they may have people coming to their house a lot more often. These situations are different. So you want to either add on one of these extensions called a work from home or a business endorsement, or you might need a separate business insurance policy to make sure that you're covering all of the business contents and also the activities that are relating to your business. So if there was a scenario, say, that under your house policy, you have a friend over and that friend trips and falls at your front steps and they make a claim because they're injured, your house insurance or would your policy, your home policy cover that? But if it was somebody coming for a business purpose and they did that, if you didn't have the add-on or the separate insurance, would you not be covered? You're exactly right. In the first situation of a friend coming over who slips and falls, that's related to your personal home activities and your home insurance policy. Someone coming in relation to your business, that's a different risk. So your home insurance and that liability portion might not cover that scenario of that business client coming to your residence. So you do need a separate insurance policy to make sure that you're properly covered. And what about something as well? You mentioned, say, computer files or such. So say you had a break-in, and I guess this is where it might get kind of muddied, is maybe you're using your personal computer, but you're using that computer for your business. You have a break-in, someone steals it. So where, where would that fall under coverage? Well, and that's where there's always a bit of confusion. Everybody's situation is different, and the best advice is to talk to your insurance representative before anything ever happens to understand in these different scenarios, do I have coverage under my existing policy or do I need to add on or get a separate policy? Even talking to your employer, if you have a laptop that you're able to bring home and use at home, if something were to happen to that laptop, Who's responsible for fixing that laptop or replacing it? Is it your own personal responsibility or is that your employer's responsibility? Have those conversations before something happens so everybody understands what's needed and what's necessary. I remember uh, talking about this as well, not specifically insurance related, but about some of those questions when things were changing so quickly and people who maybe had never even considered working from home were doing that and setting up business businesses and offices. Even something as simple as, say, if you yourself tripped or fell while changing a light bulb, then the question becomes, well, were you changing it in your home office? So that was your workspace or and it's a WorkSafe BC thing or were you doing it in your home? And, And suddenly there were all of these questions about what's covered and what your home space is really like? Yeah, everybody's situation, some will be doing business activities in their home. Some might be just 
doing some computer work in a home office. So those situations are going to be different. What we want to reinforce is that your home insurance is likely not covering any of your business tools or business equipment or even your business activities. You might need specialty insurance related to that business. And it's always best to have conversations before anything happens just to make sure that when something does happen, you know that you have proper coverage and that process goes a lot smoother and quicker. Do you know then, have there been scenarios where people have made claims on their insurance and they've been denied because it has been deemed this is a, this is a home policy, a personal home policy, and you, you didn't have insurance, the proper insurance for a workspace? It has happened, and it happens actually quite frequently. A lot of people think they have insurance, and they may not understand the details of what that insurance is. Your home insurance is different from your business activities, and we want to reinforce that. Your home insurance is designed to cover your home and your personal stuff. Anything to do with your business or business activities, you would likely need some type of special endorsement or add-on or a different policy. Does it matter what kind of business it is? It really does. Different types of businesses have different risks. Think of a person manufacturing explosive in their home versus a person doing some computer work out of their house. Very different risks and very different policies would cover some of those risks. So reach out to your insurance provider, have that conversation, explain what type of work that you're doing in the home, and they'll be able to give you the advice and set up with the best policy to make sure that you do have proper coverage in the event that something goes wrong. I I can't even imagine what the premiums would be if your business was setting up explosives in your home. Well, it would be a lot more than your home insurance, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I'm surprised you could even get coverage for that, but maybe that's just an extreme example. But certainly uh, things to think about. And like you said, there have been claims, there have been examples of this. uh, And I would imagine if you're caught off guard in that scenario, that's not such a pleasant scenario. It's not. And that's why we want people to have the conversation before anything happens so that they understand what coverage they have and what coverage, importantly, they don't have so they can make an informed, educated decision on the best way to cover those risks. There are many options and many different insurance providers in BC and all of Canada that are willing to take on these risks. So when you're coming up for renewal, and and even if you don't know what your policy covers, reach out today, have that conversation, do some research, make a few phone calls to make sure that you have that better understanding of what's covered and what options are available to you. All right, Rob, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Great chatting with you. Great chatting. Thanks for having me.